true crime story. Hey there. Welcome to episode 20 of Tell Me a True Crime Story. I'm your host, Holly. Thank you so much for being here. I hope that you and your family are happy, healthy, and together forever. Do you have a case suggestion for me? If so, please send me an email and let me know what case you'd like to hear me cover. My email is hollystellmepodcast at gmail.com. And that's Holly with a Y. Holly's Tell Me Podcast at gmail.com. I truly love you guys and big hugs to all of you. I'm happy to be back on the mic here. And it's been a while since I recorded an episode. I'm so sorry about that. If you were a faithful listener and I let you down, I just have been so busy. And for me, the researching and writing part of my podcast takes me so long. It takes me too long. It's ridiculous. I can't concentrate. Um, my mind is just all over the place and it just takes me forever. So it really discourages me. I really enjoy that part of it, like learning all the details of a case and, you know, getting everything right and accurate for you guys and, you know, getting it all down in a script so I can somewhat follow when I'm, you know, covering these stories. But it just takes me forever. And it's just, I guess that's why I, you know, I, I'm not sticking with it like I want to, but I'm gonna, I'm definitely not gonna stop doing this podcast. I love it. And um, I love all of you guys and the feedback that I've gotten so far. <clears throat> Excuse me. But um, yeah, so I'm here to stay and I'm sorry it's been a long time in between episodes, but um, thank you for being here again. And um, like I said, I'm just going to try to focus and get them researched, written and hammered out. Um, I am in like my mid forties and I hear that like when you're going through pre-menopause and your estrogen drops and everything that you just cannot, you know, you can't focus as much as you used to. And for me, I find that that is so, 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 so true because I just, I'm just all over the place and I never used to be like that. Uh, you know, before when I was doing, you know, work, homework, whatever. I went to college online as an adult. And, you know, I was, I think, in my late 20s, early 30s when I did that. And I had three kids and, you know, a marching band could go through the room and I could still concentrate. But nowadays, it's just like any little thing. And my mind's like, oh, yeah, let me look this up on Amazon or, you know, I'll look up something related to the case and then I'll just go down a rabbit hole, you know, looking up all this other stuff and just get stuck like way out in outer space. So just trying to get my mind under control and get back to consistency with this podcast. Sorry for my rant, but just had to let you guys know my reason, my excuse, whatever you want to call it. But um, 
So please follow the podcast and tell your friends and family about it. Also follow the podcast on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok are at tell me a true crime story. So I used to have a Twitter, but it got hacked or something and I cannot get them to help me like reinstate it. If anybody knows any tricks um, on that, please let me know. I'd like to get my Twitter back with all the followers that I had, but I haven't had any luck so far. If you know how to help me get that back, please send me an email. Um, Again, my email is Holly's tell me podcast at gmail.com. I'm in the midst of um, creating a website for the podcast, and I'm in the midst of um, starting a Patreon for the podcast and um, just trying to see how I can maybe make a little bit of money off of the podcast to compensate me for all the time that I have to put into it. And also that will really keep me in check if I do like a Patreon with some low level tiers um, tier memberships, then I'm um, thinking maybe like one, three, five bucks, whatever. It'll keep me on track and it'll keep me honest and keep me going, keep me consistent with um, putting out episodes and stuff. So um, thank you all again for being here. Thanks for listening to my um, little spiel here and big, big hugs to all of you. Now, let me tell you a true crime story. Today's episode is called End of Watch, May 19th, 1998. Our story starts in Tampa, Florida and ends a little north of Tampa. Tampa is on the west or Gulf Coast of Florida on Tampa Bay. According to Tampa.gov, Tampa's port is now the seventh largest port in the United States. Four cruise lines sail in and out of Port Tampa Bay. Carnival, Celebrity Cruises, Royal Caribbean, and Norwegian Cruise Line. Tampa is Florida's third most populous city with nearly 400,000 residents. And according to a 2022 crime survey by the Major Cities Chiefs Association, Tampa is one of the safer large cities in the United States. Out of 59 major U.S. cities included in the survey, it ranked 14th overall lowest violent crime rate in 2022. In 1998, 30-year-old Hank Earl Carr, his girlfriend, 24-year-old Bernice Bowen, Bernice Bowen's 5-year-old daughter, Kayla, and her 4-year-old son, Joseph, who they called Joey, were living in an apartment in Tampa, Florida. The upstairs apartment was located at 709.5 East Crenshaw Street. And yes, you heard me correct. I had never heard that before, but it is the address was actually 709.5 East Crenshaw Street. Never heard that before. First time hearing that. That is that was strange to me. Um, so by this time in 1998. There, um, they had been living in Tampa for about two years. So it's 30-year-old Hank Earl Carr, his girlfriend, 24-year-old Bernice Bowen, her five-year-old daughter, Kayla, and her four-year-old son, Joseph. They were all living together for about two years in Tampa by the time our story kind of kicks off here in 1998. So our story begins on Tuesday, May 19th. 
It was supposed to be a good day. Bernice Bowen took the day off from her job at Kmart so that she could rent a room at the Super 8 Motel and take her kids swimming at the pool there. But at approximately 9.30 a.m., her four-year-old son, Joey, sustained a gunshot wound to the face from a high-powered rifle. His mother, Bernice Bowen, and Bernice's boyfriend, Hank Earl Carr, took Joey to fire station number seven on Hannah Avenue, which was a few blocks away because they had no telephone at home. Bernice Bowen rode in the front seat with Hank Earl Carr instead of in the back seat with her gravely injured son. They left her daughter, five-year-old Kayla, with a neighbor. At the fire station, firefighters tried to resuscitate Joey, who was not breathing and had no pulse. Little Joey had succumbed to his grievous injury and died. When Hank Earl Carr realized that Joey was dead, he jumped into his car and left the fire station, even though officers who'd responded were ordering him to stop. According to Bernice and Hank Earl Carr, Joey had been dragging the loaded rifle behind him when it discharged and went off. But officers needed to investigate and find out if that was really how Joey had been shot. When Hank Earl Carr fled the fire department, he'd gone back to their apartment on East Crenshaw Street, and police soon caught up with him there. At about 10.30 a.m., as Hank Earl Carr was being questioned by detectives, he suddenly bolted and took off running. With police in pursuit, he ran through several nearby yards. Minutes later, into the chase and about a quarter of a mile from his apartment, Corporal Brian O'Connor spotted feet poking out from under bushes along Norfolk Street. Hank Earl Carr was apprehended and placed in the back of the detective's unmarked car, a green Ford Taurus. Tampa Police spokesman Steve Cole told reporters at the time, quote, We were treating this as an accidental shooting, but then all of a sudden the guy just took off. That put a whole new perspective on our investigation. That's a little bit squirrely, end quote. Hank Earl Carr was taken to the police department to be questioned about the shooting. The assault rifle that had killed little Joey was placed in the trunk of the detective's car. According to the Tampa Police Department, Hank Earl Carr was not under arrest during his transport. Little Joey's mom, Bernice, was also taken to the police department, but separately. During questioning, Hank Earl Carr gave detectives an alias. He said he was Joseph Lee Bennett, which was the name of Little Joey's biological father, and he called Bernice Bowen his wife. He'd previously told Bernice to go along with this ruse, and she did. At some point, Hank Earl Carr's story changed, and on tape, he said that he'd accidentally shot Joey. He said he didn't know the gun was loaded when he'd pointed it at him. So, who was Hank Earl Carr, really? Let's go over a little bit of what we know about his background. Hank Earl Carr was born on January 31, 1968, to Gail Carr in Atlanta, Georgia. He was born with a disease called hyaline membrane syndrome, also called newborn respiratory distress syndrome. It's caused due to a lack of a foamy liquid called surfactant being present in the lungs of premature infants. In 1963, President and Mrs. Kennedy's newborn son, Patrick, died from this same thing, from hyaline membrane syndrome, before he was two days old. Back then, about 10,000 babies per year died from newborn respiratory distress syndrome. 
These days, it only claims the lives of about 700 premature babies per year. Hank Earl Carr overcame his bout with newborn respiratory distress syndrome, and of course, his mother was relieved and thankful. Her firstborn, a baby girl, had died at birth. She'd been born with the umbilical cord wrapped around her neck. Hank Earl Carr was an active kid that never crawled, just went straight to walking, and he walked early, too. He started to read newspaper comics at age three. He loved the cartoon Yogi Bear. For you youngsters out there that don't know who Yogi Bear is, in the cartoon, Yogi Bear's constant companion was named Boo Boo. That's why Hank Earl Carr's family nicknamed him Boo. Throughout his childhood, Hank Earl Carr had severe asthma attacks. He was also restless at night. He was said to be a very energetic child, and he was difficult to handle. In response to this restlessness, his father, Harold Cox, would make Hank Earl Carr stand and face the wall for hours until he collapsed on the floor and fell asleep. His father also forced him and his half-brother to march in formation. When they misbehaved, they were locked in a bedroom. His father taught them how to take apart guns and clean them. Hank Earl Carr had mastered this by the age of two. His mom ended up leaving his dad, married a man named Don, and they moved to Bradenton, Florida. There, his second grade teacher suspected Hank Earl Carr had attention deficit disorder. She spoke with his mom about getting him evaluated for it, and his mom agreed that he should be tested. The results showed that he did indeed have attention deficit disorder. He started to take Ritalin at age seven for his hyperactivity. The test he'd taken also revealed that his IQ was 133, a near genius score. For reference, only 2% of the world's population has an IQ of 132 or above. In the late 1970s, the family moved to Barnesville, Georgia, because Carr's stepdad, Don, got a better paying job at a glass factory there. Hank Earl Carr was 10 years old at this time. He was small for his age, but tough. Folks in Barnesville, Georgia, remember Carr as being a scrapper, a kid always looking for a fight and always seeking attention. Five years later, in 1983, Hank Earl Carr's stepdad moved the family back to Florida, this time to Inglewood, a beach town about 30 miles south of Sarasota. Hank Earl Carr was 15 years old. He was taken off of Ritlin. He became hyper and tense and would pace around the house. He got in trouble with the law for drinking on the beach and breaking into a vending machine. Hank Earl Carr's mom didn't like the friends he hung out with. She saw them as a bad influence. She forbade him from seeing them, but he insisted. She said he could follow her rules or leave. Hank Earl Carr left and became homeless. He dropped out of high school at the beginning of 10th grade. He soon became friends with another homeless teen named Roger Lee Stables. They slept in abandoned cars. They brutally beat men up, knocked them out, and robbed them. Hank Earl Carr would knock people out with his elbows. He would end the fight by giving the victim a final kick to the head. In 1985, the two teens broke into a laundromat and stole money and a gun, and two months later, they broke into a man's home and beat him with a pipe. They were both arrested, and Hank Earl Carr, who was 17, was taken to a juvenile detention center. However, he refused to follow the rules and fought often, so he was transferred to the adult jail, 
then was sent to prison. He did 15 months in Appalachie Correctional Institution in the Florida Panhandle. He was released from prison in 1987 and was put on community control, an intense form of probation. His probation officer was Lisa White. His file from his prison stint was hundreds of pages, filled with write-ups for fighting, refusing to follow the rules, and for being defiant. Upon his release from prison, Hank Earl Carr went to live with his mom and stepdad in West Tampa. He got a $5 per hour job hanging aluminum siding, but was fired within a week for showing up late. His mom kicked him out of her house for coming home drunk and being rude. He became homeless again and started fighting again. He put a man in the hospital for a week. Hank Earl Carr had a great deal of anger. Lisa White, his probation officer, tried to work through the anger with him, but that didn't happen. He'd snap at her during his weekly visits with her. In 1988, when he was 20 years old, he went to prison for what was supposed to be a three-and-a-half-year term, but due to overcrowding, he was released after only six weeks. He reunited with an old girlfriend who was only 16 years old. Her name was Kathy Stevens, and together they moved to Griffin, Georgia for a fresh start. After only being together for a month, Kathy's parents drove up to Georgia from St. Petersburg, Florida, to pick up their daughter and take her back with them. This is because Hank Earl Carr had started to physically abuse her. Kathy Stevens gave birth to Hank Earl Carr's son a few months later. Hank Earl Carr soon made his way back to Tampa, Florida, where he was arrested again and again. He was again sentenced to a prison term, this time a two and a half year term, but was released only a year later. Just months after his prison release, he was again arrested for beating a man. He was sentenced to community control for that and saw his probation officer, Lisa White, in the probation office before he went AWOL. Hank Earl Carr then went to Marietta, Ohio. He'd gone there because he'd followed an old, old girlfriend up there. But soon he met and began dating someone else, Evelyn Sachs. They quickly moved in together. By this time, it was the end of 1992. In January of 1994, their daughter Tamara was born. In 1995, Evelyn discovered she was pregnant again, but this was after Hank Earl Carr had taken off with a 19-year-old high school dropout he'd met named Bernice Bowen. Bernice was a divorced mom of two kids. Evelyn ended up having a baby boy she named John Paul. Hank Earl Carr never saw his son. He'd fled Ohio with his new girlfriend, Bernice, after he'd been indicted there for drug trafficking. He'd only been in Ohio for three years, but during that time he'd managed to get charged with 22 crimes. He'd also been known in Marietta, Ohio for fighting. One time he bit off half of a man's ear. In July of 1995, Bernice Bowen sold her home in Ohio and bought Hank Earl Carr a Harley. Together, they went to Sturgis, South Dakota, to the massive Harley-Davidson annual bike rally. They dreamed about opening a motorcycle business of their own. In November of 1995, Hank Earl Carr got arrested in Sturgis after a fight and spent one day in jail. He bonded out of jail and fled the state of South Dakota. This is when they went to Tampa, Florida, and Hank Earl Carr took on the alias Joseph Lee Bennett. As I mentioned earlier, they'd been living in Tampa for about two years when little Joey was shot in the face. So, back to the story where we left off. On tape, 
Hank Earl Carr's story changed, and he said that he'd accidentally shot Joey. He said he didn't know the gun was loaded when he'd pointed it at him. So, sometime after 1 p.m., City of Tampa police detectives, 46-year-old Ricky Childers and 44-year-old Randy Bell, took Hank Earl Carr back to his apartment so that he could demonstrate what had happened earlier when little Joey was shot. Just before 2 p.m., after Hank Earl Carr's reenactment of how the shooting occurred at his apartment, the two detectives and Hank Earl Carr were on the way back to police headquarters. Still not aware of his real name or true identity, the detectives treated him as a grieving father and handcuffed him with his hands in front of him rather than behind his back. Unbeknownst to Detective Childers and Detective Bell, the man they thought was Joseph Lee Bennett, little Joey's father, was really Hank Earl Carr, Joey's mom's boyfriend and a convicted felon and fugitive. He was wanted in four states. He was a violent man who liked to fight, a man who beat women he dated. He also vowed never to go back to prison. The detectives were also unaware that the career criminal kept a handcuff key hidden on him at all times. While in the back seat during transport, Hank Earl Carr used that hidden handcuff key to free one of his hands. Detective Ricky Childers was driving, and as he exited I-275 South at Flora Brasca Avenue, Hank Earl Carr grabbed Detective Childers' 9mm Glock out of his left shoulder holster and shot him in the head. As Detective Randy Bell, who was in the front passenger seat, tried to dive over the seat to grab the gun from Hank Earl Carr, Hank Earl Carr shot him in the face. Thomas Wilson, a 60-year-old resident of Tampa Heights, lived near where Detectives Childers and Bell were shot and killed. He was behind his house barbecuing chicken when he heard a commotion, so he ran out front. His girlfriend pointed to the Ford Taurus sitting in the middle of the Florabraska Avenue exit ramp from I-275. Thomas Wilson ran over to check it out and saw the car's window glass splattered with blood and two men slouched in the front seat. The driver was leaning against his door and the passenger was wedged face down between the front seats. Thomas Wilson knew both men were dead. Tampa Police Department detectives Ricky Childers and Randy Bell weren't the only law enforcement officers that would die at the hands of Hank Earl Carr that day. And that is where we will leave off on part one of this episode. Part two is ready for you to listen to now. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Tell Me a True Crime Story. It would help me out a ton if you would write a review for the podcast on Apple Podcasts or give it a five-star rating on Spotify or anywhere else that you can review or rate podcasts. Thank you again for being here. I can't say that enough. I truly, truly appreciate each and every one of you. Um, please share the podcast with somebody that loves true crime stories or um, a friend, family member, whoever. And please join me again for episode 21 when I'll tell you another true crime story. Big hugs to all of you. Bye-bye. 